a Podcast One production. I'm taking you behind prison walls for a unique look at life in maximum security. This is the story of a man who changed his heart. He was once one of the state's most high-profile criminals, but in a 13-year stretch, he realised he wasn't going back to crime. Instead, he was going to help some of the hardest and most reviled inmates in the state to understand their legal rights and how to demand their human rights. This is one of the most unusual redemption stories you'll ever hear, especially when you know the authorities want to throw him back in jail for helping fellow inmates. This is Jailhouse Lawyer. Welcome to Adam Shand at Large. Let's go back to 2012. A man I regarded as a very senior member of the underworld sent a message from jail to me through a third party. He wanted to be a source for me for a few reasons, but especially because he was a self-taught lawyer. This conversation over seven years would lead me into dozens of gangland stories and right inside the workings of Victoria's toughest prison. A bloke named Kelvin Muir called me asking for a meeting out of the blue. I was working at the Australian newspaper in Melbourne. His friend had sensitive information to give me, but discretion was critical. Any inkling that he was talking to a journalist could have resulted in a trip to the slot, solitary confinement. I assumed that Kel was from the underworld. Good people, squareheads, don't usually run errands for inmates. Kel was stocky, bald, a man of few words, but he was in fact a working man from Sunbury, north of Melbourne, and he had a job to do. Just why he was there, I'll go into later. Kelvin was looking after the interests of a man named David Stephen McCulloch, a Scotsman who was then a resident of Barwon Jail, our jailhouse lawyer. He wanted to talk to me. So do you recall the circumstances of how that began and why? I think the circumstances involved uh, the story of one or two inmates who felt aggrieved about their convictions and were looking for someone with integrity in the journalistic field that they felt they could trust to investigate and determine fairly. So you needed someone of integrity, but you had to settle for me. (laughs) Well, I guess uh, your reputation preceded you. I first read about David McCulloch in 2001. He'd been charged with drug trafficking, but claimed to have been set up by the cops. He did have a prior conviction, though. He was also a person of interest in an infamous break-in at the drug squad in 1996. Confidential informer files were taken, which, according to police, had enabled the underworld to expose the snitches. It was a massive blow to law enforcement. A very senior drug squad officer, Wayne Strawn, was hot on his trail. And Strawn would occupy his thoughts until today. It was partly McCulloch's network that made him such a compelling target. He was a close friend to the most senior crooks in town, including the Carlton crew that had run vice and crime for decades in Melbourne. Yet he was also linked to the Carlton crew's greatest foe, a baby-faced drug dealer from Broadmeadows named Carl Williams. It was in this context that our paths crossed. In the summer of 2003-04, I struck up a dialogue with Williams, then in the midst of a spree of murders. 
Williams and McCulloch had a mutual interest in exposing Detective Sergeant Wayne Strawn, the man who'd allegedly framed McCulloch. So what was the tone of your involvement with him in that period? You'd meet with him occasionally, semi-regularly? Occasionally, because he knew I was doing some research on Strawhorn and the corrupt drug squad. I was, I was agitating for a Royal Commission, etc., etc. And because there were the same police involved, he would drop in, see if there was anything when he was in the city. That was all. Did you give him any advice about his situation at all or did you even shake your head and say, how the f*** did you get here? <laughs> no. I think when he talked about different media people at the time, I would say, what's the feel you get? I would do a bit of checking up if I could and say, well, he seems quite honourable. You can only go by your gut feeling on the rest of it. McCulloch was tight with Williams, even though Williams was killing some of McCulloch's friends at the time. Williams would later offer me a very sensitive document. It was called Information Report 44. I was about to interview a senior member of Victoria Police and Williams promised to supply explosive evidence of police corruption. IR44 was one of 31 information reports in a blue folder that went missing in September 2003. The same day, police were caught up in a botched robbery of a drug house owned by kingpin Tony Mockbell. A resident of Oakley in Melbourne South had reported that a break-in was underway in a neighbour's home. Sergeant David Meeshall and a crook named Terry Hodson were caught red-handed at the scene with more than $1 million worth of ecstasy pills. Meeshall had been attacked by the police dog during the arrest. Hodson was a well-known crook of long-standing and a suspected police informer. It was fairly well known that he was informing Forever in a day, it was just part of his makeup. It seemed it was a general consensus that this was a person never to be trusted. After the burglary, police learnt that Hodson had two handlers. One was the cop arrested with Hodson, David Meeshall. The other was Meeshall's colleague, Sergeant Paul Dale of the drug squad. He wasn't at the burglary, but he was also arrested and charged. Police convinced Terry Hodson to give up Dale and Meeshall. Hodson also told police details of contracts that Williams was offering for the murder of senior Carlton crew figures. This all went into IR44, and hours after the burglary, it disappeared. It looked like someone knew Hodson had rolled, and IR44 was the evidence. Hodson had told police he was a dead man walking. What Carl Williams did was surprising, considering he was planning to murder Terry Hodson. He decided that IR44 should be in the public domain. I'm able to piece together the chain of events from transcripts of bug telephone calls between Carl Williams and myself. On the 7th of May 2004, at 11.15am, a call between myself and Williams was intercepted by police, during which we discussed the existence of a document now identified as IR44. During that call, I requested access to that document talked about in an earlier conversation. The document showed informants discussing murder contracts, and Williams told me that he would telephone someone and have a document faxed to me. At 11.18am, Williams telephoned his wife, Roberta, and told her that he'd spoken to me, that he wanted a copy of the document and that he was going to ring now and get it done. The next call was to David McCulloch. 
At 11.22am, Williams telephoned McCulloch and told him that he wanted a copy of the IR44 document provided to me. McCulloch said that he was unable because of the source. I could see it and take notes, only on the proviso that I didn't divulge exactly what it was. As they talked about it more, they went cold on the idea. They decided against showing me. I never did get to see IR44, nor did I meet or speak with David McCulloch at that time. On the 16th of May 2004, nine days after my calls with Carl Williams, the bodies of Terry Hodson and his wife Christine were discovered in their Kew home. They'd both sustained a single gunshot wound to the back of the head. When I heard of this cold-blooded execution, just 400 metres from a police station, I thought back to IR44 and the conversation I'd had with Williams about Terry Hodson. Williams had got his name wrong. He'd called him Hodgkins. He later confessed that he'd organised the killing of a man whose name he couldn't quite remember a week before. Such were the times. Something wasn't right for that to happen. Murder shouldn't happen under any circumstances, of course, but it seemed that no one had any concern. Yeah, there was a, a degree of sadness and disgust. Fear? I think you learn to live with that fear because partly you're delusional. You believe that I got on well with everyone. Well, that was never a guarantee. There was a lot of good... Decent people were lost in that period of time. And that line that I first heard in the, the bikies, I think is particularly appropriate, where there's any doubt, there's no doubt. And that seemed to drive people's reactions to things. Where there was a, a doubt about someone's loyalty, it was an expedient thing to pay someone to kill them and then to put any doubt to rest. That's precisely how I would have assessed that period. And so was there always a potential for harm to myself? In hindsight, absolutely. Did you take precautions? I took what necessary precautions at the time I felt appropriate. I ensured that uh, I arrived at my office in company and left my office in company. There was a degree of trepidation. It was a time of shifting alliances, double crosses and ambushes. Carl Williams had fallen foul of Carlton crew members, including the brothers Jason and Mark Moran, over drug deals gone wrong in 1999. Jason Moran had shot Williams in the stomach as a lesson, and Williams had launched a vendetta against the entire Moran family and anyone close to them who put their heads up. Flush with money, Williams had killers lining up to work for him at $150,000 a pop. My first recollection of Carl is when I was at the Melbourne Assessment Prison, which became the Melbourne Remand Centre. And I had been arrested on the charge where I served 13 plus years. And I was working in reception downstairs and there's a chappie staring at me and uh, along the lines of, do I know you? And he said, I'm Carol Williams. I know you're a friend of Graham Kinneborough and uh, Lewis Moran and... I've been accused of the murder, I can't remember of which one at the time. Mark Moran was shot and killed outside his home in 2000. Yeah, and he said to me, I don't want any trouble, I've just got a new baby, Dakota. And I responded with, have you done anything wrong to me? He said, no. I said, well, we're both in jail, and jail rules are that we just do our time. So you've got no concerns for me, 
McCulloch had known Graham Kinneborough for years. The Munster, as he was known, was Melbourne's Mr Big and one of the most influential and well-loved villains in Australia. He'd been a renowned safecracker, the boss of the magnetic drill gang that took on bank vaults, and then made a fortune from importing hashish, and he'd hardly done a day's jail in his life. The Munster was powerful, but just, because he knew violence and mayhem were bad for business. I knew Graham from my perspective... I obviously knew his background, but my dealings were on a legitimate professional level with him and a social level because we got on well and I was invited to his table at the Flower Drum. The Chinese restaurant? On two or three occasions a year. I'll never forget one of his very close associates asked him one day, Graham, you've made millions over the years. Where's it all gone? And he said, mate... I reckon I've eaten about $5 million worth of fried rice, you know. <laughs> I think a lot of that was in the, the flower drum, yeah. that restaurant, iconic restaurant in the middle of Melbourne. He was always very gracious and there was always guests from interstate, I guess some with nefarious backgrounds, and, uh, but always just on a social level. And they felt comfortable in my presence because I was Graham's guest and... He was just well-liked, he was well-liked. He was Melbourne's elite lawyers and judges ate there and there was always warm dialogue in terms of endearment. Lewis Moran was also a regular at the Munster's table at the very time Carl Williams was gunning for his family. Moran was planning to avenge the murder of his son Mark. He wanted help, but Kinneborough, like McCulloch, was for peace. A peacemaker... For years, decades, highly respected, highly regarded, would rather negotiate, would rather use dialogue, had the wherewithal to tread down other paths, but didn't do so. Would rather just, let's solve this like men. Let's solve this like grown-ups. That was always his mantra. But Carl Williams was not interested in peace. But in that period, he was committed to his course of action, which was to wipe out the entire Moran faction. And I think you, at various times, had gone to the Morans to say, pull up here, this guy's serious. Oh, it's not, that's, that sounds a bit dramatic. Allow me some dramatic licence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, 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 you've taken a bit of dramatic licence there, I think. It was just a situation that I was friends with the so-called factions in dispute because I had no criminal involvement with any of them. If there was an opportunity for mild discussion, it would be along the lines of, why don't you guys put the past behind and just get on with life? So trying to broker a truce? I guess that's probably a more sophisticated way of putting it. It was just a case that I knew those people and had no sides to pick. I was always a neutral person during that period. That was just the way it was. Uh, there was other people who endeavoured to broker a peace amongst different factions throughout the history of that period. And uh, sadly, none of it seemed to, to work. Quite a few of those people ended up dead. That's the story of that period, yes. On December 10, 2003, the unthinkable happened. Graham Kinneborough was ambushed outside his house in Leafy Q and murdered. The media nominated Carl Williams as the culprit. The story was that he'd paid to have Kinneborough killed just in case he posed a threat. Yet McCulloch continued to associate with the Williams clan 
including with Carl's father, George. In the end, as we know, George's son, Carl, was responsible for Graham Kinnebra's murder, at least the ordering of it. How on earth, in that topsy-turvy world, can you be mates with everyone? It's very difficult. It's a thing which an average intelligent person would question whether there's a degree of hypocrisy involved. And I believe you only can until you're actually told that someone was responsible for someone who you knew's death. The murder of the police informer Terry Hodson and his wife Christine came six months after the Munster's demise. By this time, Carl Williams and McCulloch were working on getting a royal commission into corrupt police. Their cause was boosted in March 2003 when McCulloch's nemesis, Detective Sergeant Wayne Strawn of the Drug Squad, had a spectacular fall from grace. He was charged with dealing precursor chemicals to the Moran faction. Williams also had a beef with Strawn. He was involved uh, with Wayne Strawn in the drug squad too and claimed he'd been set up. And I was on that pathway. I think my pathway was a bit more legitimate than his pathway at the time. <laughs> and so I just got to know him and uh, then, then obviously having known his father and his, he was in when I was out released on bail and George would come and see me and ask me some questions about what he could do here and what he could do there and uh, Roberta would come with him and Dakota would come and Bree, Roberta's kids, and they were all young at the time and they come into the office and, and so, yeah, I just was as I always was. Uh, if they did nothing wrong and hadn't admitted to me anything against anyone close to me, well, I took people on face value. I've always done that, I do that to this day. Is it always a good thing? Not really, I don't think. But will I change at this late age? I don't think so. After the murder of the Hodsons, the charges against Paul Dale from the Oakley burglary were withdrawn. But now he was under suspicion for killing Terry Hodson and his wife. Police believe that Dale had stolen IR44 and was disseminating its contents to the underworld through David McCulloch and Carl Williams. But the investigation stalled when they couldn't link Dale to the crime scene or the assassin rumoured to have done the hit. Carl Williams held the key to solving the Hodson murders, but he was staying staunch, at least for the time being. McCulloch thought he could trust Williams, but circumstances change matters like these, and in June, Williams changed dramatically. He was arrested over the attempted murder of another rival and was remanded to Barwon Prison, which became his final address. A year later, in May 2005, David McCulloch followed him in when he exhausted all avenues of appeal and resigned himself to a second stint in jail, 13 years this time. My thought process had to be, you've a long time to do now. How do you do it? Keep yourself sane, keep yourself feeling worthy and be able to assist your family in a positive manner when you're talking to them. That was the prime consideration. To do that, I had to work within the system to help the guys around me that I knew I could help because in a lot of instances, I was a little bit better educated than a fair percentage of them. Some were better educated than me, of course. And I decided that's what I would do. I would just forget I'm doing time and this is where I work. This is my life just now. That was how I did it. And I just focused on that. This is what I have to do for me. It was helping other people, of course, but this was for me. 
This was to keep me sane. This was to get me to get me through, to get rid of all this, the anger, the the frustration, all of that. In May 2005, David McCulloch was looking down the barrel of 13 years inside. As he contemplated how he'd get through it, he reflected on how things had come to this. He was one of the highest profile crooks in the state and one of the best connected. But he'd only turned to crime at the age of 36. His ambition growing up near Glasgow in Scotland had been quite different. What was your ambition back in the day? Because you'd had a bright start. Yeah, sure. I was working in a bank. I had what was considered a reasonable wage at the time. My ambition was to play soccer at the highest level, but my abilities were, were enough at that time to be able to command a wage in Australian soccer. And so that was the idea, come to Australia for two years, play soccer. I was earning five pound a week in the bank. So I thought I was a superstar, but of course I wasn't, but yeah. I played for a, a team called Altona City back in those days, and then Waverley City. You're in Australia, 1972, playing soccer. You, you had work as well? Yep. What were you doing? In those days, I was working at a local factory in Sunbury. I was earning my money from soccer, and I was earning $62 a week from the factory. Not long after that, I went into real estate. So I ended up managing a real estate office in Sunbury and one in Gisborne and did all right there and enjoyed it. Then after a couple of years, got fairly bored and uh, went and did a social welfare diploma. Then it was, you're a welfare officer, called a welfare officer and uh, went to what they had at the time was Loyola College, which was uh, the in-house training ground for social workers and psychologists if you wanted to go that far. And that was the pathway I, I thought I would uh, pursue forever. Sunbury was like living in the country back then and David McCulloch fitted in well. He loved his social work and the challenge of working with troubled kids. That's how David McCulloch and Kelvin Muir came to know each other. Kelvin's father had been a welfare officer and worked with David McCulloch at Tirana Boys Home. Well, David and uh, Dad worked together years and years ago in the uh, welfare system with dealing with wayward kids. They'd gone away to Albury, taken uh, a soccer team away to Albury, which one of my brothers played in the soccer team and had a great old time. And and then Dad fell a bit on hard times. Mum died fairly young, seven, seven boys. And Dad did a great job bringing us up. And uh, Dad had fallen on hard times. We were in a rental house in Sunbury and needed somewhere to live in hell of a hurry. So I remember that um, Dave was building a house in Gisborne and put us up there for a period of time and he also arranged for Dad to buy a house in Cap Road here in Sunbury. So I never ever forgot that. That got me thinking, why would David McCulloch end up in the criminal underworld? Well, I mean, I'm trying to work out how we go from a pretty... Rosy picture to suddenly one that takes a, a sharp detour, it seems. Oh, why, why did that detour happen? 76, 77, my father took ill. A very strong man who was, was uh, I think, an electrical engineer back in Scotland and, and he was always very strong and suddenly fell ill. It turned out to be leukaemia. 
there was a guy up north, I think Queensland way, who was promoting himself as a person who could cure leukaemia through certain treatment, but it was very costly. Through my real estate connections, I had met one or two fairly nefarious people and I needed to uh, try and borrow some money to send my father to this, this doctor and they were more than willing to help and uh, it didn't work out that way because this self-proclaimed healer didn't quite have the abilities that I guess he thought he had. And so at that stage, I can recall vowing I will never let money prevent me from sending any of my family for medical treatment. David McCulloch was involved in the running of a car yard in the western suburbs of Melbourne. It looked like a legitimate car yard, but was in fact a front for a heroin distribution business. Vehicles driven about Melbourne, supposedly on test drives, were actually delivering the drugs. Had you tried it? No. I hadn't even tried a joint, and I worked in London in the bank in the days of free love, 66 and 67 and 68, and my aspirations, remember, were to be a professional footballer. So maybe that helped at the time, but no. So, yeah, it was it was a horrendous path to take. So you weren't into drugs, but you saw drugs as a business. Was that how you treated it? Purely as a way of making money at the time, yeah. Did you think about the moral dimension? Did you think about wh- where you were heading? I mean, your old man had been very strong against drugs and, yeah, I can see your face change immediately. Oh, God, you know. So how did you feel when you were making those choices, and what was the choice? I don't know that I gave myself a choice at the time. I think I had made a decision I was going to make money and make sure there was never a situation that arose in my family medically. That was the initial thought process. But then I think it becomes a a greed factor. Did you consider the cost of that, though? Like there was going to be on the other side of the ledger, there was going to be a cost for that? No, I don't think one does consider that. I think sometimes... One feels they're too clever for the system. Well, it's never the case, of course. History, in all cases, including mine, has proven that. In 1986, it all came crashing down. McCulloch was nicked and sentenced to five and a half years in Melbourne's notorious Pentridge prison. Was there a moment where, I guess, the door closes behind you or you're sitting in the, in the van or the judge bangs his gavel where you suddenly think, five years and six months... I couldn't have said it better myself. That's exactly how it is. You go, my God, five years and six months. How do you do that? Yep, sure. How do you do that? I focused on reading. I did physical education, physical exercise every day. And there you are at age 36, coming into the system, your first offence. I guess some of them would have said... What are you doing? You've you got a good education, good family, you, you're a good soccer player, even though you don't think you were. And how did you end up in here? That mostly came from the staff side of things, which sort of helped in a sense because it gave you an opportunity for a, a decent employment position. Some of the ones that I did time with there, I had met through my criminal connections outside, so not on a, a professional level, but more a quasi-social level my background in banking sort of preceded me with some of them and they would ask questions about how do you do this with money and where it can't be traced. 
etc etc so this was simple uh, accountancy stuff that you would give advice to someone who hadn't been in crime with a couple of minor twists so as not to expose yourself to the authorities with large sums going anywhere at one time so I guess I was then viewed as oh he's not he's not a bad guy McCulloch knew he couldn't afford to be pushed around in jail if someone makes a derogatory comment about you and you have to react. That was something I learned early on. And whether you're good enough or not is irrelevant. The fact that you're prepared to have a go is what precludes it from occurring again. And the guys always say, eh, he stands up for himself anyway. Got a few in. That's what I decided I would have to do if the confrontation came. Only came on a couple of occasions in that five years, so... When McCulloch first saw the inside of Pentridge in 1986, the old bluestone complex was already nearing 150 years of age. It was imposing and monumental, built in the austere classical style of 19th century prisons. The grim building and the routines that were maintained behind the walls were designed to crush the spirit of rebellion in a prisoner. In Pentridge, in your cell, the windows are blacked out at the top. And for you to be up at the window even to stand in your bed and be up at the window is a chargeable offence. So you very rarely... Well, you didn't see darkness fall. Didn't see darkness? Yeah. You can't see stars, you can't see anything. And even if there was a little scraping of paint come off, if you were up at the window and you were found to be at the window, you were charged. It was considered to be an attempt to escape. Just to look out at the darkness and stars and attempt to escape... You can really see how the experience was not just to incarcerate the body, but to incarcerate the mind and to, in a sense, break the mindset. I think that's how it was determined. After four years in Pentridge, McCulloch was moved to the newly built Melbourne Assessment Prison, which is in the CBD. After all that time of constant daylight, it was like surfacing from the depths in a submarine. So... There you are on the top floor of the Melbourne Assessment Prison looking out on the city you haven't seen in four years. What were your impressions back then? I'd imagine there'd be a certain amount of fear about this time you've lost and what's happened and your place within it. I think, uh, yeah, just, just a little bit of trepidation, I suppose. And then also mixed with that was, well, won't be long before I'm out there again start again, work hard and put it all behind me and that was the thought process I had. What were your plans? Be employed, do something, work, nothing to do with crime. It's like today, through my assistance to some fairly high profile international criminals, in my current, my sentence of recent times, they, they wanted to assist me to get back on my feet very quickly. And they had the wherewithal to do so because of their positions in fields of power in different countries. Didn't even interest me. Just glad it was all over. I had no intentions of going back to crime whatsoever. It was a time that I was pleased to have got through and felt quite sane. But starting afresh wasn't going to be easy. I think there's a time when institutionalisation kicks in and retards your mind somewhat 
how many years that is, I don't know. Can you explain that retarding process? I think the lack of normal social interaction combined with the lack of aspirations, which have to be subdued by virtue of the fact that beginning a sentence and going through the years, it's hard to aspire to something. You're focusing more on surviving and being able to keep your mind sound to get through this period. And was your mind sound, do you think, David? I think it was, but when I came out, I only took a couple of days to get back into work, thinking that I was just as smart as I've always been, which obviously wasn't that smart, but it was as smart as I always thought I was. And it was only through the passage of a year after being out that I realised my mind wasn't functioning at full capacity. There was some form of retardation during the period spent away. Now, whether that's the mind protecting itself, I don't know. How did that manifest itself? What sort of behaviours are you talking about? I would make decisions thinking that I was confusing reality with ambition and believing that the, the ambition and the optimism is all that's needed to succeed. Not that it needed the hard work to go along with it. And I think you do that simply because you're living in a partly delusional state when you've done a number of years. Again, probably not articulating it very well, but it's only in, through the passage of time you realise. Now, I think the statistics are now showing I may be correct in that assumption because I did exactly the same on this occasion when I was released in November 2017. I came out thinking, right, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to focus on that. And it's only a year later I realise exactly the same errors you made all those years ago in 1991 when you were released the first time you made again. Despite his good intentions, it wasn't long before McCulloch fell in with the crowd he'd met in Pentridge. They needed his help investing money legitimately. These are pretty serious characters you were mixing with. Did you realise at the time? <laughs> well, I obviously did. But when you come out of prison and you're starting afresh, you're taking business wherever business is there, you're not always going to get a lot of normal people prepared to give an ex-inmate the opportunity to conduct business on their behalf. I consoled myself with the fact that I was doing nothing illegal and it was all transparent, as was indeed proven when I was arrested. All my records and books were taken and no sign of anything untoward. But you, but you couldn't prove the source of the funds was from a legal entity. When it got to you, it, obviously it was clean, but... When it got to me, it was clean, absolutely, yeah. So it wasn't your job to launder the money, for no, instance? Not, not on this occasion, whereas opposed to when I had pleaded guilty. That was part of my job then. Because the two eras look a bit similar. Absolutely. Mm. McCulloch stayed under the radar for about five years before an informer began talking about him to a corrupt drug squad officer, Detective Sergeant Wayne Strawn. Strawn was certain that McCulloch was responsible for the break-in into the drug squad in 1996. Another informer told him he'd heard that a Melbourne businessman had helped organise the break-in. The task force Sentinel formed to investigate the break-in cleared McCulloch of any involvement. However, once McCulloch's name was mentioned, Strawn went after him with gusto. How significant was that break-in? 
there was a task force sentinel formed, which I think only had inspectors running it, chief inspectors of police. They investigated it thoroughly and investigated the allegations against me in relation to it thoroughly and cleared me absolutely of it. It was absolutely massive, of course, in relation to the fact that it was the 12th floor of the drug squad offices in what would be regarded as one of the most secure buildings in Melbourne, if not all of Australia. But that didn't halt Strawn's pursuit of McCulloch, which was codenamed Operation Ski. 2001, you are arrested. What was the charge? Oh, conspiracy to traffic amphetamine and hashish. So what happened there? You didn't do it, but what actually happened? A friend of mine, Mario Stumpel, who I believe pleaded guilty to the offences with which I was charged also, has never said I was involved. In fact, says I wasn't involved. We were friends for years and years and years and years. He had made arrangements to come up for lunch or brunch that day. He arrived outside my Port Melbourne apartment. We're in the car. He has said that he had money there, that he was taken somewhere. Nothing to do with me, that part. Absolutely nothing to do with me. I know this from afterwards. We're driving and then the police stop us. In 2011, one of the arresting officers made an affidavit saying that, in effect, McCulloch had been stitched up. The cops found $51,000 in cash in the centre console of McCulloch's Jaguar car. There were four people in the car at the time, so the cash had no evidentiary value against McCulloch because it could have belonged to any of them, and it could not be proved beyond reasonable doubt that McCulloch was in possession of the money. Strawhorn went off his head. The money was in the car, not at McCulloch's apartment. Take the money to McCulloch's apartment and keep him down at the site for a while, site of arrest. That's, that's the story. So you're alleging that Mario's money... Yep. ..which was in the car... Which was on him. ..on him, was taken from him... Yes. ..and that money put in your apartment? Absolutely. Where was it put? In a shredder, in a shredder bag, behind a shredder bag... Neither the shredder nor the shredder bag was taken as an exhibit. Then the Vic Paul form to Victorian Forensic Science Laboratory says, do not DNA, do not fingerprint, signed. Why? That's all he said. Why? Do, that's right, why? Do not DNA, do not fingerprint. At court they said, well, the reason we wrote that was because it's very hard to get DNA or fingerprints off money anyway. I know you can't believe that, but it's there on transcript. Plastic notes, you can't take fingerprints <coughs> off plastic. So, that's the story. Throughout Operation Ski, McCulloch was never recorded talking about drug deals, nor was he ever seen to deal drugs. There was another game being played behind the scenes, McCulloch says. He claims that Vic Pohl offered him a deal, confess what he knew about the 1996 break-in of the drug squad and he could go look after his gravely ill mother. Do I want them taken to task? Yeah, yeah, I do. I want them taken to task because it wasn't minor what they did. They took me away from nursing my mother. That's what they did. That's 2001. And you were given an opportunity while in custody... Absolutely. ..to be released... Yeah. ..if you were prepared to play ball with the police. What were they seeking? They wanted the names of corrupt police in the drug squad, colleagues of theirs, that had facilitated this break-in and they wanted those names. Did you have those names? No. But you could have made up a story and been out the same day? 
Is that what you're saying? Had I agreed to a system in any way whatsoever, they would have granted me bail. They were cross-examined at court on it and said once Mr McCulloch had said he could not help us, that was it. And Strahorn's last words, I think, on the tape recording says, don't hold me responsible if your mother doesn't make it. And they were desperate. They believed I truly could solve this for them because they came on the 27th of April, Friday. My mother had been rushed from home to hospital on the Sunday and they were back on the Monday to ask me to reconsider my values. And my answer was, as the tape will attest it, for me to reconsider my values if I had known anything, would not give my mother the son she knows she has. She could have lived, yeah. But such an invidious choice you're faced with at that moment, David. You were basically told, be a rat and your mother will live. Yeah, yeah. Stick staunch and your mother dies. Yeah, yeah. How long did you have to think about that? Oh, it was instantaneous. As I said to you, very early on in this discussion. Your integrity is one of the few things that you must maintain in life, otherwise you're completely gone as a person. But is there a day goes by that I don't contemplate that? And why couldn't I have been different? No, there's not. Every day it creeps in some part of that day, whether it's late at night or looking at old photographs. It's a never a never-resolving situation for me, that one, yeah. When did she die? Before I got out in 2002. 2001, she would have made it uh, 2001, only a few months after I was arrested. A number of the officers involved in this operation were later found to be corrupt themselves. That ensured McCulloch eventually got bail as a task force probed the extent of the rot in the drug squad. But the calls for a royal commission were ultimately ignored and McCulloch had to face the reality of his long stretch in Barwon. You went into Barwon for this very long stretch full of resentment, bitterness, anger, I'd imagine. I'd imagine. Pretty much. Looking in at yourself, and I think you'd be quite entitled to say, woe is me, the world owes me a living, aren't the human race a bunch of dogs? But something happened in there to you on this Stint. Can you are you able to kind of put your finger on it? It was an attitude change, an outlook change. What was it? I think the outlook change was getting back to just I wasn't in prison. When I sleep at night, I'm not in prison. When I wake up in the morning, I go for a run on the track, I'm not in prison. I come from the track into the gym for an hour and a bit. I eat, I'm not in prison. I shower and change and go to my desk. I'm not in prison. In part two of Jailhouse Lawyer, McCulloch will need all his discipline to get through the challenge ahead and his troubles from his earlier life with Carl Williams will resurface. He faces the real prospect of never emerging from prison ever again. The producer was Sarah Grinberg. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolic. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Adam Shand at Large is a Podcast One Australia production. 